right? I am so excited. Episode 51. So we're coming around almost on a year of episodes every week. And I have today a long time, and she might not even know this, mentor of mine and someone I've looked up to and I know has motivated me greatly to be on the path that I am in business because she met me at such a growth time in my life, or I met her, or she met me, however you want to define that. Um, I was a personal trainer at the gym. You came to the gym through another client that I was helping at the time. And just right away, I knew something about you, Pam. I have oh. Pam Lloyd <clears throat> here, and I'm just so glad that you're here. Thank you, Ken. It's really glad. I'm really glad, glad to be here. <clears throat> so, um, yeah, that was quite a while ago. And yeah. I have. I've watched you grow uh, through all of this. And um, it's been awesome. I'm glad we've been friends. Me too. And it's, I, I was just talking with my wife last night. Like, I almost wish I could personal train again because I would have so many more questions. I would have, I'd be looking at so many different things now that I'm a few years older. And I just, while the time we trained together, you were somewhat successful. I held you accountable. I called you out. But like, I think where I, you, I know that you and I had such a long relationship through training. It was how we just got each other on a leadership, on a mindset side mm -hmm. of things. And that's where I just enjoyed watching you and being a fan of yours. And then it seems like every step of this transitions, my career, I've always been reaching out to you and you've always given me sound advice. Oh, I'm glad. Thank you. So tell people your story. You're an Alaskan, you know, you've done a lot of amazing business up here in Alaska and just wherever that's, that, that suits you, you know, where do you want to start your sure. story? Sure. I often tell people that, um, I'm really a millennial in a boomer body. I've had, uh, eight careers <clears throat> and, uh, probably some other side careers along that way, but grew up in, uh, North Pole, Alaska. And my very first job was working for civilian personnel. So I consider myself to have a little HR experience, even though it was, um, I was a personnel clerk. And then from there, um, the goal was for me to go to college. And I, I was right at the beginning of Pipeline, and I told my parents that my opportunity cost was too high for me to go to school. Mm. So I ended up working for um, an, a computer company that was writing software for accounting, and we were timesharing on a mainframe. So that got me interested into the IT world, and I thought I wanted to be an accountant. I was gonna, went to school to start being a CPA, and when it got into depreciation and amortization, said, no, that's not for me. Um, and then from there, I went into oil and gas and um, construction during the pipeline, worked up on the North Slope for a little bit, um, met my husband, and we moved to Oklahoma, and I got back into IT, working for a health insurance company, and we were connecting um, mainframes and desktops and uh, mini mainframes together. And then I started doing some training, and so it's like every time there was a door open, I went for it. And I think that's a really important part of my personality is that uh, everything is exciting, you know, and I could just go to that next thing. And then I, I, I hit a ceiling and I could no longer get any promotions um, unless I had a degree. And so we came back to Alaska. Uh, at this time, I had a little baby boy and I stayed home for a year and decided I was going to go back to school. And my mother was a teacher. I was never going to be a teacher um, because I always saw only the things that happened at night you know? mm -hmm. and the bulletin boards and the grading of papers and talking to parents. And um, and so I decided I'd get my degree in education, but I wasn't going to actually use it until my senior year. 
and I taught sixth grade science and fell in love with teaching and then decided, okay, I better, I've got to work hard now to be a teacher. And I probably would have stayed in teaching um, had I not been diagnosed with uh, multiple sclerosis at age of 35 and wanting to medically retire me. And, uh, and I just said, no. And I think that's probably about the time I started meeting you, maybe mm-hmm. right after that. Um, and, and through our training, um, you know, I just, I have a hard time when people tell me, no, you can't do something. That's something in my personality that just doesn't go well for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think at that point too, I was starting to train for a triathlon mm. and it was kind of this, this deal for me that I needed to do that. So it was five years after. So worked in education, realized the classroom wasn't going to be a good fit for me with, with my, um, my label and moved to middle school where I became the technology coordinator. So again, full circle, bringing back my technology skills and then ended up at district office, um, working on a grant in literacy and technology and then took over instructional technology. And it was just, again, um, other people having, having a mentor in your life, having people that believe you can, even if you think you can't, is really key. It's really important to find that person or persons to um, work with you, to, to help you with how do you manage up? How do you manage across? How do you manage down within your career? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then GCI came knocking on my door and um, said, will you come? Will you come over? And I'm like, no, no, I'm, I'm, I'm happy here until I wasn't happy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think those are the kinds of things that happen um, where you decide it's time for me to grow and try something new. And it was very new for me. Uh, when I went over to GCI my very first year, there was an expectation that I was going to design networks for school districts um, with routers and satellite. And um, I didn't know anything about routers and satellite. I was instructional. right? <laughs> so I had to completely shift the mindset of the company to say, this is what we're going to do. We're going to form this as a program and be have the mindset of our why. Our why is because there are students in a classroom that need us. And that was a, it was a big shift. And when I first started with GCI, I was um, one of three women that you know attended a leadership. And so it was very different for me than the education. Mm-hmm. And you had to I had to learn a lot and um, and adapt. So that that's my story. Yeah. And now today I am uh, semi-retired. I consult. So I have my own business, Pam Lloyd Consulting, and um, working with a client that's a national broadband client uh, called Connected Nation, and I am loving what I do. Right, right. Because you exited that GCI, wasn't sure what you're doing, and then you stepped into consulting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I want to go back to when, because like during that time too, you leveled up your education, right? While you I were did. educating, you were relevant because you went, because you have a doctorate now, I correct? Do. So you went master's and doctor, and I know... I believe at both times. When did you get your doctorate? Uh, 2012. 2012. So that's mm-hmm. when I was, so you were getting your doctorate while we were training okay. together. That's when you were finishing that up. And yeah, it was right then, I think it was when you started, when after you got your MS diagnosis. Mm-hmm. And so in the process of you growing your education as you applied it with business, what was some of your mindset behind that, your philosophies behind it? Was it just to pursue further career opportunities was it to because you love the learning process like what was the motivation behind that that marriage I think the motivation um it's interesting because 
at the time I went through probably, probably in my forties, went through this time where I just, I'm not good enough. You know, I'm an imposter. I'm, I'm, I'm went through the whole imposter syndrome of, mm-hmm. uh, and I think a lot of women do, um, where they, they look at a job description and they'll find the one thing they can't do. And so therefore they're not qualified. Uh, and, and that happens. And so you continually do things to prove to yourself that you're good enough. And so that's one of the reasons that I went to school. Um, secondly, I was asked to be part of this doctoral program. And um, again, it was somebody who said, you know, she we believe we believe that she's going to do good things in education. <clears throat> and we want her to be part of this program. And so anytime, anytime that happens in my life, where somebody opened a door even if it was just a little bit of a crack, I went in yeah. because I was curious and I wanted to know what was on the other side. I've always said, um, I'm going to date myself now, but if I was playing Let's Make a Deal, I would never be able to pick one. You know, I'd have to go through all three doors, sorry, right. all three doors before um, I could decide, you know, which one I wanted. Um, <laughs> so I think for me, it was it was a bit of that. And then the learning was great. And I think my doctoral program was probably the best learning that uh, I experienced because you have to, you really have to put a lot into that. It's mm-hmm. not something that, um, in fact, I remember my boss when I was sharing him with him my dissertation, he was, oh, they don't give those away, huh? I said, no, not really. <laughs> it's, it's a lot of work, but it was a big growth for me. Um, and what it did is it really helped me to frame my worldview and my why and realized right then as I was working on that, um, that advocacy is where my heart is. And it worked well within GCI because I was able to be an advocate and also do well. You know, I think um, in, in business, you have to do well to do good. Mm-hmm. And that for me worked in that private sector. So um, I've been on the boards of, I'm still on boards of nonprofits and that's where I feel like the sweet spot is for me is when you have mission that is aligned with your philosophy and your your goal uh, and, and to, to do well, to do good. Yeah. What was, you know, in your mindset, right, you talk about every time a door was opened that you you were curious and you went into mm-hmm. that. Where did that curiosity feed from? Where does that stem from? Because I think that some people, I, I want to I encourage that. I think that's a great thing. But I think a lot of times when they're like, oh, it's just a little crack, I'm not sure, you know, and they stay away from it. I, I think I've always been a risk taker. Um, you know, it's as a teenager, know. it wasn't, it wasn't always, uh, looked at as a positive thing. And I sure. continue to remind my father who's uh, turning 85 this year that, um, that meant that behavior and that risk taking behavior is what makes great leaders. Yeah. You know, you have to, you have to learn to fail fast or whether to go forward and you have to make decisions really quickly. And teaching did that for me. I mean, I feel like everything I've learned about uh, being in a management position, I learned from teaching 10-year-olds. Right. Because <laughs> you're managing a lot of a lot of personalities, a lot of behaviors. Secondly, um, I went to many schools before high school. My father was in the military and we moved a lot. Sure. So I think that also yeah. creates curiosity because you're not in one place long enough to get stagnant. <laughs> And you said you had a mentor that, you know, really started to gardener you along and and do that. Did you seek out that mentorship or did they did they see what you were doing and then attach themselves to you? I think both. Sometimes um, when I was younger, I think that there were people that were 
um, that had my back, you know, mm-hmm. that were watching me and seeing what I was doing. And they helped with the way. Um, one of my very first mentors and that believed in me was uh, that got me a job with the Anchorage School District when they were only hiring four teachers that year mm. um, was Robin Raymond. And I still to this day, you know, just think so, so highly of her because she believed in me and she, she got me the interview. She was there for me. Uh, I think other times you seek them out, you know, mm-hmm. as you grow in your career, you learn that you need to seek out your mentor and, um, and they'll help you guide you through that path. Yeah. Has the mentors that you seeked out, um, in that specific vein, because I agree with that. I think a lot of times I tell people like you could even have a mentor and you maybe don't even know them, mm-hmm. right? You, you pay attention to them, you watch them, you embody what they do and it, it still pours onto you. So in those times of seeking that out, was it all people you knew? Was there people that you took a leap at and reached out? Like what was that process like for you? I think for me, um, and it may not be mentorship so much, but it's building the relationships yep. with it, which you don't know if they're going to be a mentor or not, but right. the, you know that they, there's just something incredibly gifted in that relationship that you're going to have with them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I always find this when I'm at a table with cognitive diversity mm-hmm. and I find people that are, that are smarter than me, that know things that I don't even know. And that curiosity makes me want to reach out and talk to them more. And through that, I've met just phenomenal human beings that are right. doing wonderful things that have patents and create created so many more things than I can even think about. But I think those relationships um, also continue to open doors for you. Mm-hmm. So I think it's important to not be the smartest person in the room right? and to ensure that um, the diversity around that table is really around cognitive, cultural. Mm-hmm. People think differently. Yep. And I think taking time to listen to somebody and say, oh, I, I wouldn't have thought it that way, right. you know? And it just opens your mind to, th- to thinking differently. When, when did that really hit you, that cognitive diversity and that being the maybe the least smartest person in the room became the most valuable thing that you sought out versus, because in a younger time, you want to be the smartest person mm-hmm. in the room. You want people to listen to you. But I've seen that, you know, like we were talking before we started, is the older I get or the wiser I get, the less I know and the more I seek out that. Right. So when was that for you? Probably in my 40s. You know, I think as you as you go through your career development, um, you, start to, you, st- you start to become a mentor, right? You start to mm-hmm. look at those mentoring opportunities for the younger people. And, um, and I generally have not mentored men. I, you know, they may think that I'm a mentor, but I feel like I'm better at mentoring sure. female just because it's my experience that I can bring to them. Um, and, and I've been through the gamut. I mean, I was, uh, one of my first jobs was a secretary for, uh, I'm not going to say the company, but I reported to the president of the company and I had a receptionist. I was very young and we were, um, we were the CEO president's girls, you Mm -hmm. know, and it was after, after lunch break, he'd come in with his cronies and, um, yeah, sit, sit on my lap, sit on my lap and give George, oh, give him a kiss. And, and so, Goodness. um, it never felt like a me too thing sure. at the time, right? It just didn't feel like that. Yeah. He was, he was very old. Um, but I just think that those experiences help you grow into the, the mentor, right? Mm-hmm. I've, you've, I've seen a lot in yeah. my careers <laughs> and what's, what's appropriate and what's not appropriate and how do you, um, work yourself. I think from, 
in mentoring with females, I have really worked on asking for what you need and want. Mm -hmm. If you sit back and say, I want a growth plan, um, show me what this looks like, or help me with, um, I want to do this job. Managers and supervisors do not have time. They're, they're, they're already, especially if they're working managers and supervisors, mm-hmm. you have to come to them with that path. What does it look like? Right. And sometimes you won't get it, and Mm-mm. sometimes you will. But if you know where you want to be and where you want to go, then you can bring that forward. What do you suggest to people that are in that situation where they do need to be the one that creates that plan, that they do, you know, to put themselves out there? Because that's hard for some people in those situations, right? Like mm-hmm. it's a lot of work to, you know, create your own business plan or your own development plan for yourself in a mid-level position and do that. But what are your suggestions to people in those types of situations? It is hard, but if you want it, it might be worth it. So you've got, you have to make that decision whether or not you want it. And if you're not getting it in your growth plan, then you can look other places and, um, pandemic, you know, however you feel at the pandemic, it has opened up the job markets, right? You can work from anywhere now. And, um, and that creates a competitive marketplace for employees which I've personally benefited greatly from, Mm -hmm. you know, Beacon being a national company. I can't tell you when we need a copywriter, we're getting hundreds of interviews Mm -hmm. and it, I I love it because it makes us better, but then it makes the market better, you Mm -hmm. know? And so I I really support it. And I think you have to, you have to really look at, um, I've always been a firm believer to things. And this was a advice my mom always gave me. She said, um, you have to show up. Right. And the only thing you have control of over when you show up is your attitude. So make it a good one. Right. That's all you have control over. So from there, you know, then you've got to look at what do I want? Where do I want to be? What opportunity cost is happening when I don't have that? Mm. And I think for so many people, they stay in their role or where they are because they're waiting for somebody to notice them. Right. And that's just not how it works. Mm-hmm. It just doesn't work that way. And, and in fact, I remember somebody telling me that the best way to get a promotion is to find your replacement. Right. Right. Work is a cog. You're a cog in the business. The minute that you are going to leave, somebody is replacing you. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's the other piece is that you're not indispensable. In, in whatever you do it, right. unless you're working for yourself, right? And then you have that. And that's, I love working for myself because mm-hmm. I feel like I have a lot more freedom and I don't, um, I don't have to play the corporate game. Right. Well, and for those people that are in big corporations, I think that's probably where it's going to benefit you the best to get like build your replacement mm-hmm. because in the small to medium sized business sector is sometimes like, a, you know, a fear of, scarcity would stop a promotion because they're like, I don't know what to do. I can't. And so if you force yourself through growing, someone creates that opportunity for you. And then that small to medium business owner is like, okay, yeah. You know, cause it's not going to happen unless you do it for yourself. I right. totally agree with that. And that's, it's a, it's a big fear to find somebody to replace you because totally. then what if there isn't an opening, right. but guaranteed that if it's not an opening there, you'll find something else because you're ready to grow. Yeah. And what I would challenge is, is that who you become in the process is going to prepare you for whatever's next. And you might not even know it in that Mm -hmm. situation. That's right. Yeah. 
So you talked about, um, you know, managers, supervisors, and I hear those words and I think of something I think a lot different than a lot of people think, because when I hear those, I just think of leaders. And I know that there's a big difference between a leader and a supervisor. And so can you kind of speak to how those differences relate to you? Yes, I uh, leadership matters and management and supervision is important. Leadership is about having the qualities to have a vision and have people follow. Mm-hmm. Right? It's, it's very different than managing right. employees or being a supervisor and going through the motions of um, ensuring your employees are doing the right thing. It's a whole different matter to lead a, an organization into the future mm-hmm. and to be able to look around the corner mm-hmm. and, um, and, and, that I think is a difference between leadership and managing and supervising employees. Um, you can't lead if you don't have people that believe in you and will right. follow you. And it's possible, wouldn't you say, for you to not have a position of leadership or management, but to still be a leader? Correct. Right. Absolutely. I probably you've probably seen it in your world of business mm-hmm. often, right? Mm-hmm. There's someone that's doesn't manage a single person, yet they control the room. People want to know what they say. Yeah. And they don't even know they're a leader. That's true. Although I think most of them do. Yeah, <laughs> a long enough, but they maybe they don't want to be a actual true leader, right? They like mm-hmm. to sit back and they don't actually put themselves in a position to it because that's a whole nother level too. As a leader that realizes they're a leader and they want to lead, the quiet but, leader. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So when it comes to leadership, what are some of your suggestions for people to grow in that? Because that's an intent. Like you have to, you have to choose to, mm-hmm. to, once you realize it and once you realize anyone can be a leader, right? And teachers and coaches, you know, I think those people are amazing leaders and not a lot of people think of it like that, like right. you said. Um, but what are some suggestions for people to step into that and be intentional about that? I think um, when you're going to be intentional, and I think that's a really important word, right? Um, so often, um, People are not intentional, mm-hmm. and you know, I've always, I always like the saying, you know, there's three kinds of people: people that let things happen, people that make things happen, and people that don't know what happened. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, you have to be that make it happen mm-hmm. person, and you have to see where what's possible. And sometimes you have to look beyond possible, not too far, because you won't get people to come with you. You know, right. you have to understand your audience. You have to know where you're going and you have to believe that that is where um, success is going to happen for an organization or for your life. It doesn't matter. You have to have those qualities that if you don't believe it, nobody's going to follow and come along with you. And I think you have to have kindness. You have to be an an empathetic leader. I think that is really important. It's one of the things that's kind of coming out more in leadership these days. Um, is that you have to care because you're not going to get people that want to follow you or believe in you if they think you don't care about them. Right. And so I think that's really a key to uh, being a leader. And I, I love that you said that because the market is creating that, right? You know, people can jump, people can go to different things. People are trying new things. They're not as emboldened to the same job for 20 years and it's forcing leadership to get better and it's giving people opportunities when they're not feeling that love from a leader. Right. And I think some so often leaders, and I see this, I see this more in males, but I think it's it's part of the uh, cultural societal shift that men grow up in a world where they have to fix things, 
And so, um, and women, not so much, but one of the, one, I think one of the best things I've given advice to with, um, other, to other leaders is that not everything has to be solved. And that when, when your employees or people come to you, um, with something, whatever it is they want to talk to you about, you have to set the stage for what it is that they want you to do about with that. What do they want you to do with the information you're going to get? And so I've always started out with, um, is this something you want me to take care of, to help you problem solve? Is it, you're just wanting to vent Mm -hmm. 90% of the time. They just want to vent. They're not asking you for any help. And so sometimes you don't have to come in over the top to fix it. right? Right. And, and I think, um, and it goes a little bit to generational, workers too, right? There's a lot of, um, generational workers different. I'm not going to call them out, but that have been in the participation award, you know, yeah, um, of framework, right. And, and the parents that raised them, wanted them to have more and better lives than what they had and so forth. So that's just a natural, um, generational phenomenon. But I found that, um, we, we, what we haven't done well as a society is allow our children to fail mm. and to problem solve out of that failure. Right. Right. We've become very protected and, and rightfully so it's a different world, but yeah. I think that that transforms also into the workforce totally. and you have to, as a leader, you have to be willing to fail and fail fast. Mm-hmm. Right. You can't, you can't take a group down a path that you believed in and being willing be be willing to admit I was wrong about yeah. this. We need to shift. Yeah. And um, but to hang on to it just because you said that this is where we're going yeah. and it's failing. <laughs> you're you're taking a sinking ship. You know, you're on you're on the Titanic. Yeah. And for those that hear that and think like, oh my gosh, but then that makes me afraid to take a leap and then fail. It when you own it as a leader, it is amazing how much more buy-in you get from the people. That you right. manage. And I've always used the correlation between like a beech tree versus a farmer. Like I think a beech tree is something that protects and shadows everything and protects everything under it. And that's not a leader that actually grows people, right? Uh-huh. A farmer is someone that exposes you to the elements intentionally because right. then that helps you grow, right. you know, and it, it t- takes that anti-fragility route, which is a great book for, you know, parents. And I know I have a lot of parents in there. I can't remember who wrote it, but it was specifically to that. Like uh-huh. allow your kids to learn that things break that ow that hurts um in protected environments yeah. but it's the same thing with and your employees solve, right problem solve right. the I've, I've my friend i think she i don't know if she coined it or not but um you know there's two different kinds there's a free-range parenting and then there's a helicopter right and probably somewhere in between is good right exactly exactly <laughs> No. And just, and it's the same thing with people though. Like I, I think there's a lot of times new managers or leaders see an employee about to do a mistake in a sales call or they see like, Oh, they know in advance that something is going to go wrong and they jump in and fix it. Mm-hmm. And what you immediately do in that situation is you diminish that person because they're like, Oh my gosh, I was going to mess that up. And then the, it doesn't create the environment for them to try it again. Right. Right. Well, and it may work for them. You don't know. True. It may not work in your mind or the way that you would have done it, but they may be very successful with that tactic. Right. So exactly. how do you know? How do you know yours is the only way? Right. And that's where, you know, that cognitive, cognitive like diversity plays mm-hmm. such a role because there's so many different ways to, you know, as a, a coworker mine says, skin a cat, right? There's mm-hmm. a lot of different ways to do it. And until you do it, you don't know. And let's try, right? Right. Because there might be a really more effective way in there that you just haven't tried yet. Yeah. And I think that's the, that's the, uh, 
that's what makes a good leader too. And I'm not saying I'm perfect at it, but I know the qualities, right, that I know I would like to have as a leader. So I try to, I try to put those into, um, you know, my toolbox, but it's, it's about setting. I've always told my people, um, that I've worked with and I really work for them. I mean, I really did feel like that, but I'm not going to build the yellow brick road. Mm -hmm. I'm not, I'm not the Oz behind the scene, but I can give you, this is where I, what we, we need to be. This is where we need to go. And I kind of expect you to build the yellow brick road to get there. (laughs) So how do you shift the mindset? Because I know I've said that to a lot of people and they're like, well, isn't that being lazy? You know, isn't that like, you know, just making your team do it for you? What what do you say to people that talk like that? Maybe they just don't get it. I don't know. But like I've definitely had people that when you're getting your team to do things, they're like, well, isn't that being lazy or like, isn't that being irresponsible? And I, think love- it, I think it depends. Um, you know, when I had staff... Uh, <laughs> I mean, they were, they were at the director levels, right? Sure. And so there's just a different expectation, I think, yep. at that level. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think that that matters whether you're an hourly employee or you're not. You, you have ideas. And if you want to be in a job where you're told what to do, how to do it, when to do it, there are those jobs out there. And it's a, it's service industries that we need that. We mm-hmm. need that. Um but I think the most people want to be able to know as long as they can trust the process that if they try something and fail, they're going to be okay. Mm-hmm. That it's not going to be the end of, you know, that because right. if you give that kind of rope, right, for them to do that, then you have to also be willing to support them when they fail. Mm-hmm. And that trust has to be there. Right. And I think that is probably the reason that, people um, are fearful about doing that. And I don't think it's about being lazy. I think that's maybe an excuse because they're afraid to make the the jump themselves. Yeah, no, you, you nailed it. I totally agree with that, but I wanted to hear your perspective yeah. on it. it. But it's amazing, the amount of, again, the trust that you build in someone in you, right? Like to, to give them that autonomy, just, just go do it. I use the phrase a lot, like, let's like push and do things so much that we make a mess, right? Because then we can make it better, you right. know? And I think a lot of times, especially in business, you get into a groove and sometimes people are like, okay, we want, we don't want to make a mess, you know? And I, I really try to get people to push and let's make a mess. Let's try to break it because if we break it, we can make it better. Right. Right. One of the things, um, you know, transparency is a great thing mm-hmm. in leadership and, um, and I've worked for many different companies and nonprofits where transparency was was great. You know, they shared everything that was happening in the company, but then there'd be confidential all over it, right? Which I, I understand that. But what was missing and lacking was, and here's the 30-second message that you do share mm-hmm. out of this. And I think that um, people are going to share regardless if it says confidential or not. So but true. you've just missed your moment to be have all of your employees be brand ambassadors because mm-hmm. you haven't shared with them out of this, this is what you should be saying. Mm-hmm. And so that's one thing that I've also learned and I've tried to implement in um, nonprofit organizations that I'm on the board for. And now in my current role as a strategic advisor to the CEO, um, you're talking about that is how do we, how do you create a brand ambassador across your whole entire right. company? Mm-hmm. No matter what their role, what their job is, right? 
but they have to, they have to know what it is. It Oh, this is what we say. Mm-hmm. This is who mm-hmm. we are. Yeah. That's, I love that. That's so good. What's some of the biggest differences that you notice between, and this is total pivot and that's mm-hmm. my ADHD. So that's I okay. roll with me is the differences between for-profit and non-profit because I've started to spend more time as things have gotten better in our life. It's, you know, there's some things that I see myself getting into, not boards or anything like mm-hmm. yours, but I just see so many glaring things that if this nonprofit actually tried to run this more like a business, but there's just gaps there. Mm-hmm. Have you noticed that in your, your time in nonprofit world? There can be. And I think, um, but there shouldn't be right because whether you're nonprofit or for profit, you're still running a business right. in all aspects. You still have to make money. You still have to do well to do good, right? right? You still exactly. have to have those things. Um, and so every nonprofit that I've come into, I've brought that mentality to it. Oh, I love hearing that. Um, because I think it's important. You have to operate, you have to understand in a nonprofit what governance, you know, model that you're using and that everybody agrees to that. Because I think that's really key, especially in nonprofit. Right. That's where I see a big disconnect okay. is you have um, everybody's very mission central, which is why you have this nonprofit. There's usually uh, a lot of advocacy around a nonprofit, but there isn't the organization structure mm-hmm. that's important for it to be successful. And that I'm working on that with one of my boards right now. Yeah, (laughs) I believe that because and I think the other thing, too, is I I think for some reason when you because we do a lot of marketing for profit and nonprofit and the mindset is so different when they're talking about it. It's like, yes, you you need to make money. Right. And it's like, well, we don't want to talk about that. We don't want But but you do like you need to make money because if you don't keep making money, you can't keep doing good. You know, mm-hmm. and so I love that, that I hear that you're doing that because I, I mean, I literally have that conversation with my wife a lot. She works at the university. And so even though the university is a for-profit thing, they pretty much act like they're a nonprofit. Correct. <laughs> um, they never have enough money. No. Right. So, uh, but they are, they're, they're, they are definitely a for-profit um, organization and they're doing, and they do good, right? They, they're, you yes, do they well do good. to do good. You've got to do that. I was on um, that advisory board for UAF, University of Alaska Fairbanks. <laughs> and, but I, th- but I also think the other piece on the difference between nonprofit and for-profit is that sometimes what I see happening in nonprofits is they grab beyond their core. Yes, love that. And that is a, that's a, bad, bad way to do it. You know, if, if your core isn't meeting the needs of the people that have been supporting you, then it's probably time for the nonprofit to, to die. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and sometimes and that's hard. I have, uh, I have closed down nonprofits as a board member. I have transitioned, um, nonprofits to another nonprofit because I just didn't think it was just time for it to go. But you have to, you have to stay within your core. When you start to grab Beyond that, it really does create um, brand weakness. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's it, it makes so so much sense. And then that going right to for profit is, I feel like to the same thing is you do need to stick to your mm-hmm. core. But I feel like you see so many times businesses that start to get comfortable with their mm-hmm. core, and they could do great things if they continued. But then it seems like they expand out, and then that becomes the downfall. Right. One of the things I see with the for-profit is the for-profit, the profits are coming and they're, they're continuing to come and they don't reinvest 
back into the organization mm. because they're looking, it's always constantly growth. You know, how do yeah. you get more? How do you get more growth? Um, which is, that's capitalism, you know, and I, I firmly believe in a, a big C, big C capitalist and as little as socialist. You know, I think we need to take care of the, the people that need it, but it's, but it's not a lifelong, you know, it's not a generational uh, way to go. But yeah. So that's different, right? That you, mm-hmm. I think, when you look at the difference between corporate and um, non, for profit, nonprofit, and so that's probably the area that they need to start looking at is how do you take it and put more capital into maintenance? How do you put capital into your employees, um, and to ensure that you get the growth? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love that. So tell me about this because right now I feel like what you're doing in consulting is taking these two huge parts of your role and bring it into one, right? You're educating, mm-hmm. but you're also in business in a way through it. And tell me just like what got you into this and tell me about some of the, like the love for it, the joy, you know, you know, wh- where is that going for you right now? Yeah. Well, I, you know, I retired and I knew I wasn't ready to stop working and stop doing things. I just wanted to be more in um, in control of what I did and how I did it. And so I've looked at projects or um, organizations that match and are aligned with, with my moral compass. Okay. And that's really important to me um, because I want to work in organizations that have good culture and then projects that are going to make a difference. So that's kind of how I started with my consulting. And I don't, I don't have it all figured out. It's, it's like people have come to me and said, yeah. what about this? And, um, and I think the hardest part is, is when you're working for yourself is to not give it away. Sure. Right. And you have to, I have to continue to remind myself with what I tell other people. Um, if you're giving stuff away, it has no value. Mm-hmm. And so people may come to it for a little bit, but then pretty soon it doesn't have value. And the only way you can really know if what you're offering has value is to charge for it. Right. Because if you're giving it away for free, it doesn't have a cost to them. And so when it gets hard and it will, they will give it up and then they will essentially fail from that. Well, or they didn't, they didn't, they, they saw value in it free, whether it was free, but it wasn't enough value that they'd pay for it. And so I, and I've had these conversations with lots of different um, sure. organizations, including the Department of Ed. They need to, people need to pay for it. Right. Then you know, then you know that it's got value. Yeah. So if I'm picking up on what you said, are you saying that people need to pay for education? No. <laughs> we do pay for education. We do. Already. Yes. It's it's more of a. I think I think uh, public education is the foundation for our democracy. I agree. And. We all pay to have a better society. Mm-hmm. We all pay in order to ensure that our young people who are going to be making decisions about your older life and my older life have the foundation and the structures in place to be good citizens. Mm-hmm. And I think that is, that's democracy, right. you know, and you'll, we will lose that if we lose public education. I totally agree. I totally agree. And that's the value. Yeah. No. So you said that in consulting, you seek out companies that have great culture. And I love that. I want to know in your perspective, what are things that really, you know, stand out as great culture? 
When I see a leader who's been there and their employees have been there for a long time, um, I start to look at, well, why? What, what makes this? What's making this happen? And what I see most and foremost is an empathetic leader. They care. They care about their mission. They care about their employees. They care uh, what's going to happen. And they're looking around the corner. They're trying to figure out what is that next thing that we should be working on. Um, and to me, that creates that culture. And it doesn't, you know, so often people think of the workplace as, as, as your family. You're not family. You have to be a good team. You have to play the game, but you're not family. And that can't, that's not a good culture mm-hmm. because you, you need to sometimes be able to let your teammates go sometimes because right. <laughs> they're not, they're not, they're not part of the fit. They're not part of that team anymore for whatever reason mm-hmm. and you, you don't do that with family Mm-mm. well i mean you, 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 you could, could try but you it, could but but they're, they're gonna be there yeah <laughs> and so that's interesting um what are you seeing that companies are doing right now to continue to cultivate great culture in this post-covid pandemic world i think that it's definitely more of a focus but i also think with that remote world with that you know semi part-time in office it's more challenging right mm-hmm. Because when you got water room talk, you know, break room talk, like there's that just breeds the potential for it. But right. if, you be, if you're a company that's more virtual, like what are you seeing the people do to, to be able to achieve that? I think you you rebake those opportunities through Zoom mm-hmm. or you have a face to face. Right. Yep. When um, I think for there are times when face to face is really important. If you're putting together a strategic plan. You need everybody in the room. Right. You cannot do that with some of them on Zoom, some of them there. So you have to right. have that commitment. Um, and then other ways that you can do it is, is to create create contests, create ways to bring in the fun. Because yeah. you, you have to have fun, you yeah. know, whether it's we're going to have everybody wear their goofy hat today. Right. Um, I just think you've, you've, you've got to create environment where you're not meeting, meeting, meeting all day long with no breaks and no, no time for people to be able to talk. Right. Yeah. I mean, us at Beacon, we have 31 employees spread across 14 states and we have every Monday at noon, we have a 90 minute team building and it is required, but we do nothing but fun. Charades, Mm -hmm. Pictionary, trivia, uh, we did like an, our own version of Beacon Cribs, like where each person mm-hmm. like went through. And I have to say the feedback that we've gotten from that and that we've been doing now for a couple of years has been unreal. Yeah, I mean, unreal. Like when you hear our employees talk about other employees and how excited it is, it just, it creates, and I'm even getting goosebumps thinking about how exciting it is to see the team do something. Like, and it's right. all over Zoom. Right. And they look it's forward possible. to it, right? Love it. They look forward to it, and that's the thing: regular, regular, weekly, week. You know, whatever, whatever your regular cadence is, but you have to have, you have to bring the fun factor. Yep. And you know, even um, a lot of the times I've seen too, where you have the fun factor and you give everybody DoorDash, right? right. So, so the meals there, because exactly, those are the you have of lunch together, too, right? That are that are missing, and they get to pick which meal they want. You know, who yeah. they deliver it from, but you're doing that, and, had- and it's a give back. It is. We had an employee in Australia that was quite the the figure out to, to get food to her versus everyone else for the meeting. 
Another thing too, I really recommend for companies in this culture, this thing is, is that you're either in zoom or you're in the room, right? There's no, this combo right. of both doesn't work, right? Yeah. If you got one, you got seven people that are in zoom, but then you got 10 people in the office, like good luck. Like you should might as well reschedule the meeting. Yes. I was very uh, involved in distance learning in Alaska. Yeah. Like you were 30 years ago. And, and in fact, my master's thesis is on that very topic. And, um, it, just doesn't work to have a teacher teaching a classroom and teaching online at the same time. Mm-mm. It just, it's not a good, it's not a good fit. You have to be all in or you're all out. Right. Isn't that interesting? And it's, I mean, you've been doing that for a long time. Mm-hmm. So you probably predicted that when you probably saw things, how they were going some way, this hybrid world right. that you're like, oh, I don't know. And, and having a requirement, everybody's on camera. Right. You know, that's, yep. that's the other piece is that if that culture needs to continue to, um, grow within companies and it can get very easy to fall off that but it's important i love you said that yeah i think of and this is no shade to chelsea and the university and stuff but like she has they're in a zoom and there's 10 of them all cameras off literally all cameras off and i like in ours it like people are heckling people that if the camera's on i don't care if you didn't do your makeup today get that camera on you know and it's it's in a way it's kind of cool mask right exactly (laughs) but it's kind of cool to see like almost breaking down barriers in a way, you Mm -hmm. know, and so I definitely support it, you know, so that's interesting. Yeah. So I think that that also creates a good culture when that happens. Um, I also think it's important to have all hands, you know, all, everybody in your company needs to attend a meeting, Mm -hmm. right. And hear the same thing, Mm -hmm. keep everybody on the same page. Um, but then tell them, you know, tell them what they can share out and what they can't. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, just tell them, you, we're going to tell you this, but you can't say this. You can tell you this, but you can't say this. Right, right. No, it's, you got to be able to obviously trust that environment and then be able to get into that. And so, okay, cool. Well, when it comes to, you know, where are you going? What are some of the things that you foresee in your future? What, what are you focusing on down the road? Um, I think I'm, what I'm focusing on, what I like to do is I like to work with organizations and be that outside looking in, um, you know, so often you, you can have the same skill set and have the same um, abilities to look at an organization, but you can never do it from within. You can't be a prophet within, right. from within. And not that I'm a prophet, but I just, I love being able to come to an organization and really get to meet, interview people, talk to them, and just figure out where the pain points are and offer some suggestions for change and then see some of those implemented and see differences that are that are made um, in the organization structure in looking at um, marketing products that's something that I'm real interested I do a lot of that is to say okay where's your flow whoops sorry and then operational excellence you you have to have all of those pieces together Um, and it really ties into looking at the organization structure who's in the seat why do you uh, why do you hire people? Are you hiring because they're of the person? Or are you hiring because this is the role you're trying to fill? And I see that happening a lot where you get people that will fill fill a role because of who they are, mm-hmm. but you're just not sure what to do with them yet. And you really need to have your structure set up to this is where we're going and these are the things that we're going to need to get there. Mm-hmm. And we're going to go look and seek out those. Same thing with a board. Right. You just you should always look at your board of directors and say, okay, this is what we need. We need we do we need fundraising? Do we need sponsorships? Then you go seek your board members. Right. 
Do you need everybody? Every board needs an accounting, yep. <laughs> right? And a lawyer. Those are those are two sp- uh, two spots that are wide open for anybody to get on board. If you're a lawyer or a CPA, yeah, CPA <laughs> or lawyer, right? I mean, we were just we're you know, looking at you know expanding, right? Because we're a growing company and. Where right now the CEO is CEO and CFO, which is not fun for anyone, you know, and we're looking at recruiting the CFO. And it, it was crazy when we started looking and building out what do we need from a CFO? Because mm-hmm. that's exactly what we're doing. And to look at how much more goes into recruiting a CFO than even a CEO of a company was insane to me. Yeah. But it made sense as you started to unpack it. So, right. But yeah, you're right. totally right. Lawyer and you know, CPA is like, yep. <laughs> can't go wrong in those two areas. Right. But it's intention. That's the other thing, right? Like you that. you, yep. you have to be intentional about knowing where you want to go, how you want to grow, right. and then what do you need to get there? Yeah, I mean, it, it, people probably miss it, but you're right. It's it's so important to just develop the perfect the position you need, and then go find the person to fit that. What are some suggestions you talk about from a recruiting standpoint, or when you're trying to find someone in that space? You know, because I think there's a lot of different hiring techniques. I think there's a lot of different ways that you qualify. Is this a good fit? Is this not a good fit? What are some of the the high level points that you would probably suggest to people in that space? I think it's important not to make your job description so specific um, because you you will. So many people will look at it depending on their age, depending on where they are. There's one thing on there. Oh, I don't do that. Or it's so specific that you look at it and say, "That's three. Per- that's a three people job. <laughs> right. There's no way I'm not applying for that one." Right. And um, and then I think as far as recruiting, you have to you have to advertise in different ways. You know, you have to. Word of mouth is also a really good way to 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 look at that. Um, and you have to. I think you have to have a culture of really good onboarding. Mm-hmm. Because that I see missing a lot with, yeah. with organiz- especially organizations that are growing fast. Um, if you don't have a good process for onboarding people, it doesn't matter how well you recruit them. You won't keep them. Yeah. And the value of recruiting well, it just changes everything, mm-hmm. right? Because if you make that one bad hire and then you have to offboard them and then start that, it just, it hurts everything. Right. And I think if you really think about what you're looking for um, within a job, Training them for the things that you need is the easy part. Mm-hmm. Finding a really good fit is is the hard part. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do they fit within your culture? Yeah. What are some things that you suggest to leaders that are trying to establish a better routine or a better structure around that fit? And Because I think it's really hard, right? I think because I know that we've seen that where it's a really talented person. They could be amazing, but they're not the right fit. And you have to be able to identify it and objectively say, not now. Right. I think it has to do with the questions you ask, right? If you are asking, uh, one, first thing I, I really appreciate when I'm interviewing somebody that's done some homework on the, on our company, Totally. Right? They know they've at least looked at our website. They know what we do. They know our mission. They know our vision. Um, I think that's really important. I also think that you have to ask problem solving kinds of questions, um, it's also like, you know, in teaching, if, if you're asking questions that can be Googled, you're asking the wrong question mm-hmm. and it goes, to, it goes true when you're hiring somebody, if you're asking questions that could easily be Googled and looked up and, and regurgitated, then that's probably not, you're probably not asking the right questions. And so you have to ask those questions that bring out, um, if you're wanting creative space, you need to be, look for a person that 
can be creative and ask those kinds of questions that will draw that out. Right. I always use the example, like, cause you're right. If you're asking questions or you're creating positions that are like that, that's what you're going to get. And it like, there's, I use the example, like we live in a world right now where people, you know, if you took a spelling bee right now and you were asked to spell the word cat, C-A-T, that's the right answer. But then we live in a world where if you spell cat, K-A-T, and then someone else spelled cat, R-A-Z, those are both equally wrong. But cat, K-A-T, is phonetically correct in trying to find the person that can spell cat in a different type of way and justify mm-hmm. it. It's right. always been like the or ick, it for me. how do you explain 12, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it's simple things that can be profound mm-hmm. if you have the right framework to look within. Yeah. I love that. Okay. And how fast can they think on their feet? I think mm-hmm. that's the other piece too yep. is that, um, and, and interviewing is hard. It's hard. It is hard. You know, I would, I, I don't envy the people, especially now that we, when we do interviewing with, you know, 10 to 12 people around the, t- the table. So many opinions. <laughs> or around the Zoom. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, that's, uh, it's a, it's an interesting one. You know, more perspectives, you know, and it can be valuable, but there's a certain point where it's, it, it becomes challenging for sure. When it comes to, leadership. And I know this is something you're really passionate to. And I kind of want to go back to something that I I don't know if we got all the answers in is what are some of your first go-tos for people that you're mentoring or someone that wants to listen into this and they want to grow in their leadership? Do they need to start reading books? Do they need to start listening to podcasts? What are your suggestions to them? I think leadership, um, not sure leadership is learned in that way. For me anyway, I think that you have to you have to really dig deep on where do you want to be and what do you want to do? And not everybody wants to be a leader. You know, mm-hmm. not everybody, and not everybody can be a leader. <laughs> if you have all, everybody's leading, you're not, you're probably not going to get anywhere. Right. But if that is where you want to see, um, you know, I think as I was, when I was really young, I'm sure, you know, the first thing I, when somebody asked me what I wanted to be, I'm sure I said in charge. Um, <laughs> and so I've always had that, you know, sure. I want to be in charge. I want to be in control of what I do. I don't, you know, I don't want to be telling you what to do. Nobody's a boss of me. Um, so I've kind of always had that in my back of my head. But what I share with people, it is not just so much as leadership, as but it's growth. I, I mentor more people in growth. And when doors open, take it. Don't be afraid. Mm-hmm. Don't be afraid. And don't be afraid to say what you want, what you need. Negotiate for yourself. Um, and then I usually talk about a lot about how you, with, especially with young women, how do you negotiate salary? Yeah. Um, that's a really key thing. So many, so many people don't realize that in most organizations, wherever you come in at, that's where you're going to be. And you might get a two to three in these days, maybe a two to 3% every year. So you have to really know your worth, know your value and, um, and really think about that. What does that mean to know your value? And then, where do you want to go? What is your What does your growth look like? And if you're looking at, I want to be a supervisor. I want to go into um, management, or I want to I want to run the company someday. Then you've got to kind of you've got to manage up, and you've got to manage down. You've got to be able to do that, and you've got to have other people see your value. Will you explain that manage up and manage down? Um, oops, sorry. So often. So often what you see is people do their job. 
and they expect people to see they do their job and then reward them for doing their job. Mm-hmm. And that's not really how it works. <laughs> so you have to be able to manage up to your to the to your supervisor. So they're saying good things about you. Yeah, you right. you're talking to them. Um, it's just not always noticed. And so I think it's important when we say manage up, you're managing your leadership with sharing these are the things I'm doing. This is what I'm this is what I hope to see. Here's an idea. Uh, what do you think? And find find that mentor, even though they don't think they're their mentor, but but find them mm-hmm. so that you can kind of watch what they're doing and see how they're how they're leading. And then manage down. And manage down. Manage down is, you know, everybody, uh, even in a systems organization, which I really like systems thinking yeah. um, in, in organizational structure, but there's always hierarchy. Mm-hmm. And so you have to be able to manage with, em- with empathy, I think, yeah. with the people um, and show that you care. And I've always looked at, no matter, no matter where I am in the hierarchy of, of management, um, I work for the people that I'm managing. You know, I'm the one that is helping lift them up. And, uh, and again, finding a replacement. <laughs> yeah. I have a new executive assistant because my, you know, it's a shameful brag. My, my newest assistant, my last assistant got an amazing job in promotion through, you know, the two years we were together. And so I had to go get a new one, which I love it, but it also is like, oh, I got to get a new person, but it's mm-hmm. exciting, you know? And she's about a month in and I, after every meeting and she told me today at the end of the a meeting today, I was like, okay, what else do you need from me today? And she's like, you got to stop asking me that. And I'm like, what do you mean? And I'm like, I, I, in my opinion, you work for me. Like I work for you. Mm-hmm. So what can I do to better you help you help me mm-hmm. right as an assistant right. role and it's just like she it is i love it because it's just throwing her off mm-hmm. you know but she's doing awesome and so it's so funny that you hear that yeah. i literally had a conversation about it yeah. with her today but it's true i mean you have to you have to uh you have to set the this is this is our target right and it's just it's the same thing when i was teaching um you can't move the target around you know that's not that's just not nobody's gonna hit it <laughs> Mm-hmm. And that's your goal, right? Is you you said, okay, here's the bar we're going to hit. Um, let's do it. How are we going to get there? In As your, we, yeah. In your experience, it's is it common that people just don't actually have a target downrange to hit? Yes. Can you unpack that at all? Hmm, I'm trying to think of an example. <clears throat> I think um, some people feel like they just exist in their job. And they just continue to do it, and then they're happy with that. Or they're not happy, but they just continue, and they don't know how to... They know they're in a box, but they don't know how to get out of it. And sometimes it's hard to help that because it's more about failure at risk to get out. Mm -hmm. And so it's just more comfortable to stay where I am. I mean, I'm in business calls all day long. I sell marketing, you know, and so I'm in these people are coming to us and they want to grow their business. Mm-hmm. And I, what is your goal? And it is insane to me how many people, all their goal is, is I want to do more business. And I'll be like, okay, what does that mean? I don't know. Get more clients. Okay. And they don't know. Right. And so it's like why I asked that is mm-hmm. like, I just feel like people don't actually have targets downrange, which means you're 
aiming at a target blindfolded and spinning around in circles and trying to hit it. Well, they don't have a they don't have a target that's even measurable. Right. That can that we can all say, yeah, I understand what it means to increase my business by ten percent. Right. We all can understand that. You know, you've got your starting point. You're going to grow ten percent. Right. Um, but there's so many. Sorry, there's so many that uh, that you're right. They don't, and they just they just don't have that business mindset of of how to explain what it is that they want. Right, right. Yeah. And so that's common for you too. Is that mm-hmm. you see that just people don't actually have measurable goals, and I think that's in life, right? You know, if you want to lose ten pounds, if you want to go on that marathon or whatever, it's like setting measurable goals and. I encourage people to do that a lot more. So I want to, I want to expand on it too, because I know that I talk to a lot of women. I know a lot of people listen to that in this podcast and you were talking about negotiating for your best salary, knowing your value. You say you help people with that. I'd love for you to unpack that or expand that because I think that's such a valuable thing to talk about. Well, I think first knowing your value, it's good to, um, it's, it's good to have and reach out to peers. Yep. Keep going. I'm just going to adjust it. Okay. Okay. Uh, it's really good to have a peer relationship with other companies or understand, do your homework. You know, what are, what are other companies paying for the work that you're doing and what do you contribute? Know what you contribute to the organization. Um, and then go with a plan and say, here is where I am and be willing to take a risk. You know, sometimes you have to say, I, my, uh, earning potential is X. And I would like to be here for as, as long as I can. However, I'm going to need to have more money. I'm going to need more. Here's what I see, what I can do, where my growth path is. You have to define that, but you have to also know your value. And then stop. So often you go start talking and you say, this is what I have to have. This is the money I need to have. Um, don't do that. Right. Don't be the first person to say the number. Yeah. <laughs> Allow allow them to come back and say, well, what about this? And then you can know know what your number is. But I see so often that, uh, and I've done it, where I have to have at least X. And they look at, that's great. You got it. (laughs) And you were way below where they were going to give you. shot way too low. Yeah. Yeah. So how do you you get people to shut up? Because that's what they need to do, right? Mm -hmm. Create space and be quiet. Because that's so hard. Rehearse it. Right. Okay. Practice with a friend. Practice yep. in the mirror. Um, just count to five after you say it. Wait time. Mm-hmm. Pause. The power of pause is very important in everything you do. In fact, my necklace that I have is the pause. Mm-hmm. You know, and to remind myself the power of pause when you're speaking, when you're listening, when you're negotiating. Exactly. Uh, Chris Voss. Uh, uh, never split the difference. It's a great book and literally power of pause. He was an FBI negotiator for many, many years. And, uh, that's what he talks about is the power of pause. Oh wow. I haven't read that book. It's a great book. And you know, he talked, he uses it in the negotiating tactic of sales, right? Mm-hmm. You know, when you hit your pitch, be quiet, right? Mm-hmm. And a lot of people jump in and they say something and it interrupts their thought, which then most likely leads to losing the deal, you know? Right. So yeah, no, it's, it, it's definitely a good one. And I subscribe to that fully. All right. So uh, I love to know what, you know, this is a question I ask every person on every podcast. What's the single best piece of advice that you were given? Yeah, I think, um, 
I think it's probably my mom's advice, you know, is show up, show up, be present. And all you have control over is your attitude. So make it a good one. I think it's a good, I love that, you know, because the older I've gotten in life, you find that people just don't consistently show up. Mm-hmm. surprisingly enough. I mean, I experienced it in the gym, right? I can't, it, my heart hurts over the amount of people that give up on their own dreams, mm-hmm. you, you know? And if you just consistently show up, right, it matters. Right. What's a piece of advice that you hear thrown around a lot, but you caution people to it? You know, I use the word bad, but what's a piece of bad advice? You hear it a lot and you're like, oh, I don't know. I mean, I, you mm. know, maybe context could be good here. Yeah, I'm trying to think. Um, bad advice. I don't really have, I don't have anything on top of my head on bad advice. Um, I think, I think advice, you know, my dad used to always say, advice is like armpits. Some stink, some don't. Uh, you just have to know, right? And so I don't think any advice is bad. It's how you choose to use it or not use it, right? But that's up to you. That's what you have. That's your charge. Right. Um, and so... I think being open to any advice is actually a good thing. Right. You just have to be able to decipher it. And what may be bad advice for you one time could be good advice the second time. So um, I think keeping keeping an open mind is really important. And again, it goes back to that cognitive diversity. And don't be afraid to change your mind. You know, just because <clears throat> I see this often with leaders that, nope, I said that's what we're going to do and we're just going to stick to it. And they just can't let it go, even though somebody, you know, one of their employees came up with a better idea. And sometimes you shift, fail fast. Mm-hmm. Don't, get, don't get too hung up on the emotion because it'll change like the weather. It's so good to accept to be able to change your mind, right? And then own that you changed your mind mm-hmm. and then just move forward. Right. And just maybe have short term memory loss. It might help a little bit just as long as you learn from it, you know, but changing your mind can be powerful, especially with new information, Mm -hmm. which we get so much more that every day you go on. Exactly. Exactly. And, um, and you may get more and it'll change your mind again. And, you know, that's just part of living. Uh, Every year, a friend of mine way back, probably 25 years ago, started this tradition of choose a word every Mm -hmm. year. Uh, long before it became in the rings and it's, you know, it's kind of, it's a trend now. Mm -hmm. Um, but this year my word is acceptance and Mm -hmm. that's, it's been, you know, accept where you are, accept who you are and accept other thinking, you know, to open up and wait, just wait to, to allow for other people to, to talk. So you have done that for many years. You've done it while we were Mm -hmm. training and I don't know if I got it. I've heard it in other places, but our word this year is be disagreeable. Uh, I think too many times people are too agreeable, right? Mm-hmm. And they just agree or they accept or they say yes too much. And I think that at a certain time, if you have the right boundaries, being less agreeable can be very beneficial to mm-hmm. someone. You know, per- I'd say don't be offended. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if you are less agreeable, right? You know, because too many people take offense. No, I love yeah. that. Well, is there anything else that you want to share in this world of education, leadership, business uh, that? we can get out to the world. I would just say embrace change. It is going to happen. Nothing will remain the same. Businesses, corporate worlds will be bought and sold and it will not be the same when it's, when that happens and just embrace it um, and learn from it because there's so much 
so much happening now. And we could go, the whole AI thing is very interesting Ooh, to me. Damn, um, don't maybe go down a rabbit hole. <laughs> oh, I could. I know. My, my marketing that's another, brain. That's for another podcast. Oh. Um, I just think that we have to think around the corner on these technologies. And um, every technology, everything that comes about can be can be used for good or bad. It's a right. choice of the person. Um, and I just, I just think we need to continue to think about where we go with that. So what Chelsea and I have always said is everything is a trade, right? Mm-hmm. There is good, there is bad. Right. Social media, there is a lot of bad in social media, but there's a lot of good too. Mm-hmm. People staying connected. A lot of people don't know this, but like a missing cases that people are found so much right. faster with social media and the power of that. And so it's a trade. Mm-hmm. There's a trade with technology. You know, I, I want to ask this because you, I think that this is something that will land real home for you is, is like, we're coming up, you know, we're talking about this huge employment gap with baby boomers retiring out all that workforce, what's going on. And I truly believe that what is happening with technology, with AI can potentially make up that gap because I don't think a lot of people actually understand that gap that's coming mm-hmm. in the, over the next 10 years. And I'm very excited for what the potential is on some of those things. It's scary too because of the trade, but I think it's the one thing that's going to help us, you know, fill that gap. Well, it's not going anywhere. I mean, so you have to start to look at, okay, so what do we do? What are the, what are the what ifs, you know? And that's some things I also look at is what if, Mm -hmm. what's the worst thing that could happen? Well, the worst thing that could happen um, with chat GPT is that the human responses are gone to be able to articulate something and then what, or the human responses are just wrong and nobody questions. That's the what if, right? Right. So when you look at that, if you can, if you can frame it as to the what if, what's the worst thing that could happen, then how do you, how do you problem solve for that? Because it's not going away. It's here and it's going to continue to evolve. So how do we, as the human brain help to ensure that that evolution has the best impact for our next generation. Yeah. I'll have to tag you in. I have a lady, her name's Nora McGilvery, I bet. I met her at a uh, Vistage meeting Mm -hmm. and she worked for the Air Force in the 70s on AI. Wow. And her whole career around AI has been around AI ethics. Mm-hmm. And the ethics of AI and machine learning, and how right. to like how to discern that, and so I, man, she she is a think tank. Yeah, I'd love that. to. Yeah, yeah it's very interesting. Yes, yeah, so very yeah. very interesting. So it's a it's definitely been a world of ours. My thing to that, and I've told a lot of people because every business owner I talk to is like, well, what about AI? What is this doing? Is is that it only learns from the capabilities that we give it. And no matter what, it will still need us at somewhat to make it more accurate, refine it, any of those things. Mm-hmm. And it's not going anywhere. But my belief would is, is that if you're a business leader, if you're a marketer, that a marketer that uses AI will replace a marketer that doesn't. Mm-hmm. Or, a, or And a teacher, right? Like is a great example. Right. I know a lot of teachers or educators are like terrified of AI. And I'm like, lean into it, use it, figure out how to make benefits from it. Because in my opinion, if you're an educator and you use AI, you will replace educators who do not because you will not be able to keep up if and you don't. As an ed tech, you know, that's been my background as education technology. 
Um, I strongly believe that. It's, it's just like cheating on tests, you know, and if, if you can Google the answer, you're asking the wrong question. Yep. And it, the same thing is going to happen with AI. You're, we're going to have to figure out, again, think around the corner, how do you, how do you analyze what is coming out of this to be accurate? How do you look at primary sources around where did it come from? Right. Um, and you, we just have we we need to continue to teach thinking, mm-hmm. and uh, and then we can go on a whole another tangent too around screen time for you know, our young people. You know that's yeah <laughs> that's an, I'm yeah. all for education technology, and we're seeing we're seeing uh, I think a backlash on social media. We're seeing backlash at the legislative at different states that are wanting to ban. Um, and that's not the answer either. Mm-hmm. Right. It's, it's, we've got to, we've got to look at more education around what's happening when our young children are plugged into a phone Yeah, and how much is enough? What's, what's yeah. too much? What's not enough? Well, what's your advice to a new parent that does not know the answer to that very difficult uh, formula? If you are spending more time on your phone or your screen while your child is there or your child is spending more time on it than they are with you or vice versa, it's too much. Right, right. I Children need to have the interaction with their, their the parent. Right. So I think that's just log. Start looking at it and say, when is it too much? That'd be a good barometer check. Yeah, no, I mean... I told Chelsea and we, again, it's not fleshed out, but I'm like at least 14, 16, maybe, you know, mm-hmm. and yes, we work from our phones. We're busy on our phones. Uh, but I'm super happy that like Jordan doesn't get any screen time. She's only a year and a half, but like she even doesn't like, she originally like it was, re- it was like crack to him. Like, you know, mm-hmm. they wanted to look at it and it was mm-hmm. scary because they could, they could start to swipe on it and stuff. So unless we're FaceTiming grandma or grandpa, we or looking right. at pictures of her. Right. We don't do it. And and what, what is your why? Why why is it is it to with an educational thing or is it to entertain? Right. You know, big difference. It, there's a big difference. And once um I mean we're conditional. Humans are conditional. So if I'm getting my screen because I'm throwing a fit, <laughs> then that's going to be my mode of operation. Right. Every time I want to play a game, I'm going to throw a fit. <laughs> right. It's an interesting time, right? Because you and I, and I'm even younger, but didn't grow up around screens, right? Mm-hmm. Cell phones like these didn't come out until after I was out of high school. Right. So it's just a completely different... Yeah. Is it Pong? Yeah. Yep. Yep. I mean, I had Nintendo, you know, which was definitely more advanced than Pong, but still it wasn't anything like it was today. And so, I mean, life is screens, right? Like I know I remember when East High School, I have a friend that's a a father that has his kid goes to East High School. And I think this was just one year ago or two years ago. They went paperless, tablets for everything. And that was insane to me. I'm like, wait, they don't write at all? Like, no, and they went completely tablets. So it's interesting because you're saying that, but then it's almost enforcing screens. So like, where's where's the balance there? Yeah, that's hard. You know, I think education. I was talking to a um, one of my daughter's friends, and they're just getting ready to have a new baby, and it was like, and all of a sudden, you know, when you're having a baby, you get interested in what's going on in education. Sure. And she's like, "Do you know they don't teach cursive anymore? <laughs> they have it for a while." <laughs> I said, yeah. I said, and do you know why they don't teach cursive anymore? 
Um, and she goes, no, why? She goes, that's just so important. I said, but is it? Is it, is it because you learned cursive? You know, and, and I think I tried to share with them. I said, the thing about public education is that it hasn't changed the number of days since the early 1900s, where 180 days of education based on the agrarian calendar, because people were farmers, um, hasn't changed. But society has asked public education to solve so many societal issues with curriculum. So something has to give. Right. <laughs> so handwriting, yeah. this cursive handwriting was it. And and frankly, I said it's probably better that they learn to type. Right. In this day and age. Yeah. I mean, I just recently, I was a hand journaler guy. I'm a journaler, you know, get my thoughts off because it's, it's helping me process my ADHD. And um, I actually now have multiple notes on my phone and I type it all. I get a lot more out. But I mean, it is the day, you know, right. in the world that we live in. And I can't read my handwriting because of my arthritis. So right. there you have it. I can think faster. <laughs> Then exactly. I can write. <laughs> exactly. But, and so typing is a solve for that. No, I agree with that. I'm curious on, oh man, you said that about the cursive and the changing in education. I don't know where I was going to go with that. I'm not super versed on education, obviously, like you. And so I could ask a lot of questions because obviously we're in the same boat. Yeah. The fun thing is, is Ch- or Jordan will be going to the exact same elementary, middle school, and high school that I went to. Oh, wow. That's fun. We're in the fun. exact same school district, which is insane. I would have never guessed that. That's awesome. Yeah. So it's... You it's might, she might even have some of your same teachers. She, it, It's very, very possible that she could. Yeah. I know. It will be... We'll see. I Definitely at the high school level. I don't know if the elementary school level, but definitely at the middle school, high school level, I think it's going to happen. Man, I really... I was. We were talking about that and we went down that rabbit hole and you were talking about education. The curriculum and changes, the same number of days. Yeah, it was something societal, around that. So, fixing uh, any societal issue that comes about. Yeah, you have well, I was going to ask you... So this has always been my pet peeve and I don't know anything about education. So I'm excited to ask you this. And I have, uh, it's really great that you're coming on because next week I have a, a client, an old client of mine who's an educator that is one of the best educators I've experienced. And it's because she asked me to come many times and speak on school and, mm-hmm. and her high schoolers, like I think sophomore and junior is her classes. The buy-in that I saw from these high schoolers at Bartlett High School, mm-hmm. insane. I, I always tell the story. She goes like she just before she gets the attention of class, she would go shark bait and they would go ooh ah, ah and then clap twice. Like from I think it's like Finding Nemo or something mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. The whole class, like it was insane. Right. And I was like, all right, you're good. She at, commands the classroom. You are good at what you do. If like all these kids of this age range are like locked in on you, and you know, and I came and spoke on business and leadership and stuff at her class because she, her and I connect on that. Right. And, it was, it was really cool. But my question is, is why don't we teach things like taxes and financial literacy? Why don't we teach things like buying a home, like debt and like all those things? Why, why aren't those things taught in school? Some teachers do. I mean, I, in elementary school, I did, uh, I taught mini society where they had to form a business and sell. Yeah. We did that in our school too. I taught them, uh, how to budget and from, you know, it's really hard today because you're very tied to curriculum and, you know, it all goes to what are they being tested on and where is the role of the parent in teaching financial literacy and where is the role like, on on the school for that. Sure. Um, and there's a lot of – education is probably the only profession that decisions and funding are made from non-education – 
and that everybody who goes through the system has had at least eight years of experience in that institution, Mm -hmm. good or bad. Yeah. And so it's very difficult to make changes because of that. Right. Um, you'll You'll have people that were very successful in the school and expect it to look and feel just like it did for them. Right. And others that, you know, for prime example, you know, brand new, brand new parents, why aren't you teaching cursive? I had to take cursive. Right. And, but not understanding the political nature of public education. I think that's the other piece. Teachers never got into the role, understanding the politics behind public education. Right. So, I mean, so what do you think are the solutions for it? I know those are big questions, you know, but from your perspective, just your perspective. They are. I think public education needs to be um, the school that you, that make it be the school that you, that will be the choice. I think if it was, if, if money were not the object around public education, um, I would promote teachers get paid at the same rate as any other profession that went through five plus years of school mm-hmm. and that they have a year round job. Doesn't mean that school is all that time, but they have paid professional development. They have paid time to talk with other teachers, to look at the path. Um, you know, so often elementary teachers don't talk to middle school teachers, middle school teachers don't talk to high school, high school teachers don't talk to um, colleges or, or skills. Um, school districts don't talk to the business. They speak a different language. All of those things make it complex. Universities blame the, the K-12 for not having the students ready. And, um, and this cycle just continues, right? right. Um, businesses say they're not getting what they need. Uh, but those conversations don't happen in a way that is understood. Um, I remember watching a a session one time and I've done this with people is you have two groups and one group, you put up a different song and the other group, you put up a different song, but they clap the same. So twinkle, twinkle, little star and A, B, C, D, E, F, G clap the same, sound the same, different words. And that's what it's like for educators to talk to business and business to talk to educators, Right. right? They just don't. They don't communicate on the same. And education is a closed culture. You know, if you mm-hmm. haven't been a teacher in the classroom, you're not one of them. You're not one. You're not an educator. You're not one of us. You don't understand. Yeah. Uh, and so with that said, it's a very complex situation. Yeah. And, you know, with charter schools coming, coming out and it's hard because you're using the same monies, but then they have to have their own cost structure for those. There's just a lot of um, things. And I think that if I worry with a voucher system that supports a private school Mm -hmm. because public education will be left for those that can't afford to drive, can't afford to. And we need, we need that foundation. But instead, wouldn't it be great if you had schools, public schools that were built around um, a theme or built around what parents wanted and that there were no transportation issues and you could choose that school with your public education dollars. Yeah, that's interesting. It might be different. Right. Because then you choose and then based on your choice, you're motivated. Based on your motivation, you support. Based on your support, funding increases. Correct. 
then you can achieve those things. And you yeah. have you have the teachers that are agree to that philosophy. They are, you know, you could have an arts art school, you could yep. have a music school. Um, I remember meeting a superintendent in um, Mississippi. It was one of the poorest districts in, in the nation and lowest test scores of all of Mississippi. He had seven, I think, seven schools. And he created magnet schools, public magnet schools, mm. and provided transportation and became the highest test score uh, of, of the state, had people moving to his district because they wanted to be able to have those kind of choices. Isn't that incredible? I think when you can match your parental philosophy of education with your student and know, really understanding this is what my, my child needs with teachers that also agree and administration that agree around that and transportation is not the problem. I think you have a cognitive diversity in a school right. as well, right? You're going to bring different ways of thinking right. and different, um, different abilities, different socioeconomic, different everything. Yeah, and you have this holistic approach that then hears multiple, because it is a multi-pronged thing. It is. And it's just a whole bunch of people pulling at different angles for what they want, you know? And, and it's the same money. Right. You know, the money hasn't changed. Um, and everybody talks about how expensive public education is. Well, try not spending money on it. Right. I mean, it's... Your jails are going to be full. Right. You know, you're going to have society that... Um, isn't going to take care of you, is it? Right. Why would they? You didn't take care of them. Right. What's your philosophy on college? You know, me and Chelsea have different philosophies for many different reasons, you know, and I'm curious on what yours is because I know for a long time, at least the, the what I chose to do was the path not mostly chosen. And for the reasons of that, I took a lot of heat for a long period of time until now it's the dust has settled very working and I might be an exception, not a rule, right? Dropped out mm -hmm. of college. Um, but, and I don't think for people, but I'm curious on what yours is like, everyone get a degree. And I know that like in the professional world, there's a lot of that, but what's your perspective on university and college? I think it's, I think, well, from a societal change, it's shifted, yeah. right? It used to be every child needed to go to college. Right. And even when I was growing up, you know, I was probably, I was the first going to be the first generation to go right after high school. Um, I think that college does, does things. It, 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 it creates a worldview for you that might be a little different than if you didn't go to college, but it's not for everybody. And I think that, um, I think that universities need to be more accountable to getting jobs. You know, if you go, if you spend money down at, in Seward at a career technical space, they're mandated to have jobs for you. Right. Right. Um, and I think what we've done with this, every child has to go to college combined with providing a lifestyle for our kids that was way better than we had and then wanting to continue it. Uh, we see such huge student debt that they're never going to be able to get to that place. And that's probably why I just saw just statistics. 63% of millennials live back with their parents. How many? 63%. <sighs> Oh, and millennials are what, 26 to 35 or something like that, yeah. I'm guessing? 20 is, yeah. I don't know what the exact I'm years are. I'm not sure, but I mean, I'd have to don't quote me I know on I'm old. Percentage. I know I'm old on millennial. Yeah. Like I'm 35, mm -hmm. right? And I know that I was first or pretty close to first generation right. millennial. But, you know, I think that it's not for everybody. And if right. there's, if you're, uh, I think there's also needs to be some accountability on the university to have programs that, are there to for jobs, you know? I don't. 
I think just because you got your PhD in women's studies and then you want to create a program around it, right. what's the job? Right. What job am I going to have when I right. get done with this? Yeah, Chelsea and I watched a documentary. It's on HBO Max and it was a book. It's called Borrowed Future and it talks about universities mm-hmm. and it talked about how inflation of, of everything over the, the last 50 years and how the single highest increase in cost has been university, mm-hmm. has been college. And it's in, it's in the couple hundred percent increase, right? right? Whereas housing has increased by 60% or something like that. And it was talking a lot about that. And there was a lot of areas I agreed on one side and agreed on the other. My thing is, is I agree with you, it's not for everyone. And I think it shouldn't for a long time. And I don't know if it's gotten better now, but if you don't go to college, you're going to be a failure, right? Like, mm-hmm. but I'm, I know people that are plumbers that never went to college and they are crushing it in life, Great. right? You know, and that's and okay. Doing well. And we need that, right? We and need if plumbers. We, if we, uh, I just think that you, I think when, when people graduate from high school, they don't necessarily know what they want to be. And mm-hmm. I don't think they have to, that, that the world is open. What you do have to do though, is you have to have a skill. Mm-hmm. You, you know, you either, either think about college or think about going to a trade school but have a plan for how you're going to um, take care of yourself, right? Yep, and yep. be a productive member of society, right? Well, and just like you did after every career, and I, I think I talk a lot about this on a lot of podcasts. No matter what you do, make it the stepping stone for the next thing. If it's IT to education, and then education to the next IT education job, make sure that whatever you're doing is the next. Right. I see a lot of people. And I've talked to a lot of people that were going to go be a lawyer two years in, got you know $150,000 in debt, and then decided to be an art major. Mm-hmm. I just, I think that's a bad business decision. It would be right. my, my perspective on that, you know. Like, it, it, it probably is. Right. And so <laughs> just understanding what you're doing, making it a sounding board right. if you are going to take that plan and you're not sure about it. Yeah. And so, yeah. And I also think um, one, of the, one of the things I did a lot of career talks in schools after you know, after I was um, working in the cor- in the corporate world, and and I would ask them, you know, so do you know what you want to be? And some some kids are like, I'm going to be a doctor. Yep. I'm going to be a veterinarian. I know what I want to be. Um, and but most of them don't. And I said, that's okay, but you do need to define what success looks like for you. Mm-hmm. And I said, let's just start with, you know, and you know, ninth graders. How many of you want to be living in your parents' house at 25? Nobody. So, okay, good. We're then we're 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 on to something here. Yep. The first thing you have to do is graduate from high school. Right. That's that's your first success measure right. of not living with your parents at 25. Right. If that's what you want to do. You know, you may you may want to do that and it may be fine for you to do that, but most ninth graders do not want to do that. No. So you start with those bite-sized segments of okay, then how do you how do you get there? Right. You know. Yeah. No, I love it. I think that's a great, especially coming from an educator's perspective. I promised Chelsea that I will never talk down on college if she wants to do those things. Because I think you're right. Like if you want to be an engineer, you want to be a doctor, go to college. Mm -hmm. My second question to someone like that, because I ask that a lot, I'm like, what do you want to be? My next question is, is do you know someone that does it? And have you spent any time with them? Mm -hmm. Because if you want to be a veterinarian, that's great. But have you gone and spent a lot of time around death, around right. pet animals? You might love animals, but a lot of animals are going to mm-hmm. die and you need to experience that if you really want to be in that. Yep. Because there's secondary cost to choices. Mm-hmm. And I think especially in that next step, it's important to vet those out before you get into them. Right. I've always thought that um, high school should really end in 10th grade. The reason it won't is because of sports. But mm-hmm. then 10th grade to 12th grade was all community service. 
Mm-hmm. And you go and you just figure out the world. You figure out kind of where you want to be, what you do, you shadow, um, and you give back. You give back in some way. And and then you make a decision you upon, mean? you know, 18, 17, 18, about what you want to do. Do you want to continue on school or do you want to go um, do you want to go find a skill set? Do you what do you, what are you, you going to do? Right. Yeah. Right. For me, I love school. You know, I yeah. even after I finished my PhD, I, I said um, to Rick, you know, the real way, and for me, it was like my worldview just changed around advocacy. I needed to really advocate for underserved, right. and um, and so the boards I that I serve on are all about that as well. But I said, you know, in order to really make change, I probably need to go back to school and get my law degree. <laughs> I was ready. I was oh, ready to man. go, and and because then you know that's where policy is that you've got to really be in the in the, in yep. the law. And he said, "Please don't." <laughs> so I, I did. So I didn't. <laughs> yeah. No, I know. I told you the story about Chelsea going back to get her master's, and I told the I need the business plan before she gets a doctorate, and I need to sign off on it before I say yes to that. But because um, it's a support. I mean, it's, it, you're not just going. I was working full time, and but, so there were many days where. Rick would bring my breakfast, lunch, and dinner to me. And right. yeah. Yeah. I mean, Chelsea and I made the decision. I support it. Her master was a support of pushing in her career. And I'm so proud of her. And she did it debt free, which is an awesome mm-hmm. thing, too, to be able to do that. But yeah, I mean, it was a commitment. I mean, we had, you know, she. Family. Right. Commitment. You know, she got pregnant while she was getting her master's. We went and she kept all the way through it. And I'm so proud of her to work a full time job, being an amazing mom, and get a master's all at the yeah. same time. But it definitely is a team sport, you know, in, in that situation, right, you know, right. and so that's why I need the business plan for sure. <laughs> um, well, Pam, I mean, I, there's so much more I want to go in, but I want to respect the listeners. I think probably everyone could, you know, use a break. Yeah. <laughs> but I, we have to do this again, even if it's virtual from Florida, because there's so many things that I want to continue to talk about. And I know from doing so many of these, this one is going to be amazing and I can't wait to get the feedback and um, I'm going to definitely have to have you back. All right. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Yes, this has been it's amazing. It's been awesome. It's been so awesome to see you too. Yes. Well, and we, in we real have, life. Yes. No, I know, <laughs> but I had to have you while you were here when you reached out. So I was glad that you did. And I'll be back. I'm, uh, I'm back and forth. So good. If right. you come to Florida, we could do one there. Definitely. The pool. Sign me up right there <laughs> on the, the water. Yeah, no, I love it. So thanks, Pam. And I cannot wait to share this with the world.